Well, good morning. This month we have been in a series that we're calling Selfless, in which we're looking at pride and humility, two things that are talked a lot about in the Bible, uh, one of which is uh, said to be the, the root or the core of almost every other sin that we can commit. You can track every other sin back to the sin of pride and humility, the other one being one of the most defining characteristics of Jesus Christ. And so we've set this month aside both in worship and in our small groups and our midweek service on Wednesday nights at 6.30 to go a little deeper into pride and humility to see what does the Bible say about it, how can we learn from that and begin to apply that to our life. So we started out a couple weeks ago by just looking at what is a definition of humility. What is humility according to the Bible? And in Romans 12, we looked at that passage. You might want to look at that later on. But basically, we summarized it with a quote that says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. But here's the problem with that definition, maybe if you've been tracking with us for a couple weeks you've already figured this out. The minute I start trying to evaluate how much I'm thinking about myself, I'm thinking about myself. Right? I mean, so I, I want to be more humble, I want to be more selfless, and so I'm going to try to think, how often am I thinking about me? And there I am, I'm thinking about me right there. And you get in this little vicious cycle and you, you can't quite find your way out of it. So we said, obviously, uh, we need something more uh, than just the man in the mirror to decide how can we become more selfless. What are some things we can do? And so last week we started uh, listing a few things that we could do to help us become more selfless, more humble. And the first one we looked at last week was this. Selfless service is an antidote to entitlement and selfish ambition. Selfless service, meaning that we just recognize the needs of other people, and it doesn't matter if it's our responsibility or our problem, but we see the needs of other people and we selflessly serve them. We selflessly meet their need. And what that does is that fights against our entitlement, what we think we have a right to, a position we think we have a right to attain or to hold, our own ambitions and what we want to accomplish. And we looked at the example of Jesus as he washed the disciples' feet. He did what none of them were willing to do, what the the job of the lowest servant was. He got down and washed their feet and he said, as I have done to you, so you also are to do to other people. And so the first thing we said, if we want to live a selfless life, is to embrace the idea of selfless service, selfless service. Now, this leads to another fear that I think a lot of us have, uh, that, that we see this in Jesus and we think, man, that looks really good. Like that's, that's attractive in Jesus. When we see it in other people, we think, man, that looks so good. But the problem is we resist it in ourselves. We resist living that way on our own. And, and the reason I think we resist it, at least I know the reason I resist it, is because I'm often afraid that if I live that way, I'll be forgotten. I'll be overlooked. People will take advantage of me, right? I mean, you may be thinking, if, if I really embrace that kind of lifestyle, then who's looking out for me? Because in my experience in life, if I'm not looking out for number one, then nobody else is going to look out for number one. And so we're afraid that if we were to embrace a selfless lifestyle, if we were to become selfless and be more like Jesus, we might be uh, overlooked. And here's what happens to that fear. That fear leads us to some pretty deep personal insecurities, And those personal insecurities themselves are causing us to focus on ourselves. And as we focus on ourselves, we only become more and more self-centered, which is another word for being arrogant. So so catch this with me now, because it's a vicious cycle. 
We know, we recognize how good it is for someone else to be selfless, to be humble. We, we see how attractive that is. We are afraid, though, that if we behave that way, we would be overlooked, taken advantage of. People would not look out for us. And so then we begin to look out for ourselves, and we begin to defend ourselves. We begin to, uh, we begin to advocate for ourselves, which puts the attention squarely back on ourselves, which means that we become the very opposite of what it is we see is so attractive in Jesus. Fear leads us to this sort of focus on ourself and leads us into arrogance. And now, here's what's interesting. Every person who has struggled with pride struggles with both arrogance and insecurity. Now, when we think about pride, we always think about arrogance. That's easy. Like somebody is prideful, they are arrogant. But we often don't realize that the root of that arrogance is a deep, deep insecurity. Brant Hansen in his book Unoffendable says that if our security was based in reality, now track with me, if our security, if our personal security were based in reality, Hollywood stars would feel secure in their fame, but they don't. Powerful politicians would feel secure in their power, but they don't. Good-looking people would feel secure about their good looks, but guess what? They don't. In fact, there is a, uh, there's a major sports outlet that every year produces uh, this, uh, this article about athletes and their body image. And what's so interesting about this is some of the world's best athletes are so entirely consumed with their own body because they feel like they're not good enough. They're not strong enough. They're not fast enough. They're so consumed with their own ability to perform and maintain this status that they think they're achieving, and yet it's always like that carrot that's at the end of the stick. They never quite get there. Listen to this quote from supermodel Cameron Russell. Here's what she says. I am insecure. If you're ever wondering if I have thinner thighs and shinier hair, will I be happier? You just need to meet a group of models because they have the thinnest thighs and the shiniest hair and the coolest clothes And they're the most physically insecure people on the planet. And so what we find is that the root of pride is arrogance and insecurity. And they go together. Almost every person who's arrogant is also deeply insecure. And everybody who's deeply insecure is focused on themselves. Here's what Tim Keller likens uh, our egos to. He said, an ego is kind of like a part of your body. Everybody's got an ego. Having an ego isn't a bad thing. It just means you're human. But, but it, would be like, uh, it would be like an elbow or a knee that were inflamed. Maybe if you've ever had an inflamed elbow or inflamed knee, maybe you injured it or somehow it was, it was hurting. It, it, maybe you stubbed your toe or hurt your foot and your foot was inflamed. What happens when a part of your body becomes inflamed? It's really, really sensitive. I mean, and it's almost, it seems like everybody steps on that foot, Right? Everybody shakes that hand. Everybody bumps that elbow. Because when it's inflamed, it's almost a bigger target. Your ego is the same way. The bigger your ego is, the bigger of a target it is, the more sensitive it is, the easier it is wounded. So here's here's a little test. If you are somebody who constantly finds yourself hurt, if you're somebody who finds yourself really sensitive, if people have said, hey, you're really kind of sensitive, and then that hurt your feelings because they said you're sensitive, like... If you're easily angered, the chances are good that you have an inflamed ego. And just like if you had an inflamed elbow or knee or foot, you'd go to a doctor and you'd have something done about it, 
The truth is you need to do something about your inflamed ego or it will only get wounded again and again and again and it continues to get larger and it's a vicious cycle. So this morning, I want to talk about what we can do to address the idea of arrogance and insecurity. And and we're going to look at a passage of scripture that I think teaches us this truth, that selfless witness is the antidote to arrogance and insecurity. Selfless witness is the antidote to arrogance and insecurity. Now let's talk about what I mean by witness. Because in a church context, when you hear the word witness, you often think of the word uh, evangelism, sharing your faith. And and that's certainly true. But that is not what exactly the, the entirety of what we're talking about here when we talk about a selfless witness. In fact, if you were to look up the idea of witness uh, in the rest of the world, the, the legal world, in law, a witness is someone who is either voluntary voluntarily or under compulsion providing testimonial evidence either oral or written of what he or she knows or claims to know about the matter before some official authorized to take and receive testimony so a witness in a court of law is someone called to come and to give their account of what they saw what they experienced now here's here's a good witness a good witness comes and they just tell the what what do they tell truth yeah they just come and they just tell the truth they they, they don't try to spin it their way they don't try to make the testimony all about their perspective or their they're just simply trying to tell the truth they're there to testify and it's not about them it's about what it is that they saw what it is that they experienced or what it is that they that they witnessed what you find through the Bible is that there are people that God sets aside to act as his witnesses in the world, both in the Old and the New Testament. People who he encountered, he encountered in their lives in some miraculous way often, but sometimes it was just in a quiet encounter. And then he expected them to give testimony about that encounter with him. And, and it seems like the pattern is pretty, pretty consistent. That the people that God uses that way tend to be some of the most humble people in the Bible. So, for example, in the Old Testament, we see a picture of Moses. Moses, the Bible says, was the most humble man who ever lived. And no, he didn't write that about himself. Moses was very humble, and yet God used Moses to be a witness for himself. In the New Testament, we see the story of the life journey of the Apostle Paul, somebody who at one point was very arrogant, very consumed with himself, but over the course of his time following Jesus, became increasingly more humble until he was a witness. And of course, his life still speaks, his life and writing still speak to us today. And then, of course, Jesus, the very picture of humility himself. So, so the question this morning is, how do we learn from these individuals what it means to live a life of selfless witness so that we can have a, 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 a counterbalance to arrogance and insecurity that our egos seem to be so pro- prone toward? Is there a formula? Is there a formula that guarantees in every situation, every circumstance, that we could keep ourselves in check? And the good news is there's a very simple formula, and we're going to look at it today. In fact, it was given to us by someone that Jesus paid an incredibly high compliment to. In fact, it's the the highest compliment Jesus ever paid to anybody. Here's what he said in Luke 7, 28. There was never a living person greater than John. Now, that's a pretty high compliment coming from Jesus. Like He says, okay, of all the human beings, and Jesus knew every human who'd ever lived... And he knew every human who was ever going to live. He said, 
John is the best. He's the best example. You want to look at what it means if you've got to look to somebody else besides me, I want you to look to John. Now, if that was you and me, that's a pretty high compliment. Immediately, our egos would start growing, right? I mean, Jesus just said, I'm the I'm the best human. Like he said, he pointed out and said, there's nobody greater than me. So what was it about John the Baptist that warranted such a high compliment from Jesus? Now, let me just take you back to this time. This was a time in Jewish history where God had been silent for over 400 years. The last time God had spoken was through the the prophet Malachi. Things had been silent. There had been no word from God. There had been this promise that someday God was going to send a Savior, a Messiah, who would come and rescue his people. But generation after generation, that doesn't seem to happen. Many people have sort of forgotten about that. The religious leaders continue to do what they're doing, and they continue to offer sacrifices. But it's empty. It's meaningless. People are still participating out of obligation. But there comes this man out in the desert who who begins to speak and capture the imagination of hundreds and hundreds of people. And people began to travel out to the desert to hear this man speak. His name was John the Baptist. In fact, he was Jesus' older cousin. And he was a bizarre, bizarre man. Even for Bible times. He, the Bible tells us he dressed in, uh, he, he, he dressed in, uh, in uh, camel skin and he ate locusts. Now, that's just weird. I mean, so this guy was not, you know, he was not on the front of any fashion magazine. I mean, nobody was going to him. He was not asked to be interviewed on the Food Network about his diet. I mean, he was the opposite of what everybody would have found attractive. But he had this message that kept drawing people. And they kept coming out. And his message was pretty much in your face. Like, you need to repent of your sins and return to God and be baptized as a symbol of the cleansing of your sins. And people were coming out from all over. Even religious leaders and priests were coming out. And so as these people were coming out, a rumor began to come up that, hey, this is the Messiah. This could be him. The one that everybody's been promising. This could be the guy everybody's waiting for. But John said, nope, it's not me. And yet the crowds kept coming. Crowds kept coming. And Jesus said, or John said, I came to point out to you the one who is to come that God has promised. But I'm not even worthy to tie the man's shoes. I'm not even worthy to get down and strap his sandals on him. That's how much better than me he is. That's who we're looking for. So one day, Jesus comes walking by, and John says, there he is, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And he puts everybody's attention off of him and onto Jesus. And he baptizes Jesus. Well, from that moment, some of John's disciples left John and began to follow Jesus. Uh, In fact, John, the the author of the Gospel of John, was one of them. Uh, Another one was Andrew. They were John's disciples first. They left and they began to follow after Jesus. And as some time goes by, more people are showing up and following Jesus than are following John the Baptist. His group is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and Jesus seems to be growing in popularity. And that's where we find this encounter. If you have a Bible, open to John chapter 3. I want to begin looking at verse 22 at this example of what it means to be a selfless witness and how that is an antidote for arrogance and insecurity in our life. John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into Judea, the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. 
for John had not yet been put into prison. So, so what you've got going on here is you've got John the Baptist and his posse and Jesus and his posse. They both got some water and people are coming and being baptized by both of them. Their ministries are actually happening and running at the same time. Eventually, John is going to be put in prison. His ministry is going to end, but that hasn't happened yet. There's a short period of time where they're happening simultaneously. Verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom you bore witness, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. In other words, here's the conversation. John, dude, get it together. Everybody's going to that guy's church, and they're not coming to yours anymore. You need to up your game in social media, man. You need to do a better job of promoting. You need to start wearing some skinny jeans. You need to make the music more contemporary. How about some fog machine and some lights? I mean, let's do something to up the game. Everybody's going over there and following Jesus. Nobody's coming to you anymore. You're slipping. You're you're losing your game. What did John say? Verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it comes to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who, ha- who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear hi- hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Here it comes. Listen to this. this, this underline this. Mark this. Highlight this. Write this down on your arm. John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Will you say it with me? He must increase, but I must decrease. Say it again. He He must increase, but I must decrease. See, this is a picture of what it means to be a selfless witness. There's no arrogance in that. There's no insecurity in that. That is somebody who is fully aware of what God has called him to do and is willing to embrace it. So let's take a look at three characteristics of what it means to be a selfless witness from John's testimony. The first thing is this. A selfless witness knows that God is in control. A selfless witness knows that God is in control. Listen to what he said in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. James said it this way. James 1, chapter 17. Every good and perfect gift comes from from God. Job in the Old Testament, Job 1:21 said this, "Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked and I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." Now, these are examples, three people, John the Baptist, James, and Job, who understands what it means that God is ultimately the giver of every good and perfect gift, that there is nothing that happens that comes outside of God's control. That doesn't mean everything is good. That doesn't mean there's no suffering and that we could just look the other way and pretend like everything is, is okay when it's not. But it is, a, it is the assurance and the knowledge that God is ultimately in control. That's what John the Baptist believed. It's why he could be so secure in what he was called to do. Listen to this quote from a 7th century bishop by the name of Isaac of Syria. He said this, a humble man, a humble man is never hurried, hasty, or perturbed, but at all times remains calm. 
Nothing can ever surprise, disturb, or dismay him, for he suffers neither fear nor change in tribulation, neither surprise nor elation in enjoyment. All his joy and gladness are in what is pleasing to the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, a humble man is steady. They, they don't get perturbed or upset or disturbed when something goes poorly because they recognize God's in control. But they also don't become surprised or overwhelmed or arrogant when things go well because you know what? That comes from God too. They understand that God is ultimately in control of all things. So let me just ask you a personal question. Is there an area of your life right now where you are attempting to take control? Where you are trying to assert your will And maybe from your perspective right now, you're just trying to assert your will over your spouse's will, or over your children's will, or over your boss's will, or over an employee's will, or over a neighbor's will. Maybe, and maybe that's legitimate. I don't know. I don't know your circumstances. But but here's the bigger question. If that's you right now, whatever the circumstance is, let me just ask you, are you really at the core trying to assert your will over the will of God? Are you really trying to assert your authority over him? And so you find yourself in this circumstance where you're constantly fighting. Paul, Paul was confronted by Jesus. Jesus said, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you fighting what I am trying to do? Do you recognize that God is in control? Because until we know and understand that God is in control, we will constantly seek to fight and battle our ways. We'll find ourselves in despair or in elation at whatever circumstances come, but our circumstances will control us unless we realize that God controls our circumstances. A selfless witness knows that God is in control. The second thing we see from John's example is that a selfless witness embraces the role he or she is called to play. Listen to what he says in verse 28 and 29. I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Now, I know this seems silly, but for some of us, that's probably all the sermon we need. I'm not God. Right? I heard an amen over there somewhere. I'm not God. I mean, that's, that seems so obvious, but it, it can be such a revelation to some of us to realize that's not my role. He says, I am not Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church belongs. That's why John wasn't upset. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and bears him, who, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. You know, here's the thing. I, I do a lot of weddings, and... Um, and, and I can remember the bride and groom, like I can always remember that. You know who I never remember? I never remember the best man. I don't. I'm sorry. If you've been a best man in a wedding I've done, I'm sorry. I, I don't remember you. I remember the bride. Why? Because it's not about you. <laughs> now, what is the role, what's the job of a best man at a wedding? I'll, I'll tell you what his job is. His job is to show up on time, because they're notorious for being late to the rehearsal. Show up on time. Hold the rings and hand them over when I ask for them. If they get dropped, it's his job to pick them up. And then sometime at the reception, I need to be able to find him so that he can sign as a witness on the license. But guess what? If he doesn't sign the license, I'll just get somebody else who is there to sign it. I don't even really need him for that. What is John saying? He said, listen, my role is to be the best man at the wedding. Yes, it comes with some responsibilities. Yes, yes, it's an honor for me to serve in that capacity. But this isn't about me. This isn't about me at all. 
This is about the bride and the bridegroom. So I just wonder, are you accepting the role that God has called you to play in life? Are you willing to accept that role? Listen, if you are the parent of young children right now, it is not a very glamorous job to take care of preschoolers. In fact, it's the exact opposite of whatever, whatever the opposite of glamorous is, that's it, right? I mean, if you are someone caring for an aging parent or a spouse who's ill, and that's where God has you right now, are you willing to accept that role and know that you are in the center of God's will doing exactly what God's called you to do and be secure in that and not constantly looking at some other thing thinking, why is God not calling me to do that? What if we just all embraced whatever it is God calls us to do? And we were glad to do it because we said, that's my role. That's my job. That's how I'm called to serve right now. And it may not be comfortable, it may not be glamorous, it may not be anything anybody will ever write a book about, but I can rest assured that as long as I am fulfilling the purpose that God has for me, there will be a day where I will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. What other accolades or recognitions do you need? Are you willing to embrace the role that God has for you? John was willing to do that. And here's the other thing about it, and this is one of the reasons I love the scripture. Jesus had a specific role that he was called to play as well. The Father had called him to to come, to live among us, and ultimately to lay down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He was called to do, you, you talk about that show Dirty Jobs. I mean, Jesus had the dirtiest of all dirty jobs. I mean, I just, listen, even if he didn't have to die for all of your sins, just dying for mine was a dirty enough job. But then he had all of ours together, and that was what he called to do. And do you know what I love in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is confronting this reality? He prays, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. You know what that tells me? Jesus would have rather not done that. There are things in your life that you, will rather, you would rather not have to do. Listen, we've all been there. But just because I would rather not have to do it doesn't mean that it's not God's will for my life. In fact, that may be the very thing that my obedience glorifies God the most by embracing whatever it is that God's called me to do that I may want to do the least. Because I recognize that Jesus said, let this cup pass from me. But then he said, but Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. A selfless servant, a selfless witness knows that God is in control A selfless witness embraces the role he or she's called to play. And finally, a selfless witness joyfully decreases so the glory of God might increase. Listen to what he said in John chapter 3, 29 and 30. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I get joy from seeing Jesus increase even as the crowds coming to me are getting smaller and smaller. Even when the crowds finally completely leave, even when my disciples all finally abandon me, even when I'm arrested and carried before Herod, even when a teenage girl lies about me and asks for my head on a platter, even as I'm dying, I am decreasing, he is increasing, and this is my joy. Jesus said for the joy set, the book of Hebrews says for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. That as we decrease, we recognize that God increases. Here's the formula. Here's the formula for us. How to live as as a selfless witness. How to keep our arrogance and our insecurity in check. And here's the formula. It's just this. It's so simple. He is greater 
than I. He is greater than I. In every situation of your life, he is greater than I. In, your, the, in, in the circumstances where things aren't going well and things look bad and troubles are coming, he is greater than I. When things are good and you're getting the recognition you'd wanted or may, and maybe even deserved, he is greater than I. In every circumstances, he is greater than I. You know, I, I think it's important for us to recognize John's hum, humanity in his humility. Towards the end of his life, as he's awaiting to be executed, he sent a message back to Jesus' disciples. Remember, he's all alone. He's in prison. Don't know how long he's been there, but his execution is coming. And he sends this message back to John, Jesus' disciples in Luke seven eighteen. He says this, Are you the one, or should we look for another? Are, are you the one, or should we look for another? Let me just translate this to get, I think, to a little bit more of the heart of what John is saying Jesus, are you worth it? I'm about to give my life. I'm about to die. Are you worth it? Are, are, you, are you the one? If you're the one, this is what I'm called to do. But I am only called to live this kind of a selfless life for you. You're the only one. Are you the one or should we be looking for another? And then this is... Jesus' response in verse 22 and 23, go tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you read the stories of the Bible of all the miraculous rescues, like, like Peter was in prison. Peter and Silas were in prison. Paul and Silas were in prison. And, you know, there's a miraculous rescue. Peter's in prison, and there's this miraculous rescue. There are all these that Jesus was about to be thrown off a cliff, and somehow he escaped. There's a miraculous rescue. Miraculous rescues all over the place. Why, why wasn't John rescued? If, if he was the best man who's ever lived, the best man who's ever lived, why wasn't he rescued? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But here's what I do recognize based on John's story and Jesus' words to him, that my circumstances do not reflect how God feels about me. Because I know that John's circumstances do not reflect how Jesus felt about him based on what Jesus said about him. Yes, he was in prison, and yes, he was about to be beheaded, but Jesus said of all the people ever born, there's nobody better than John, and yet he still died. Here's what I recognize. I can't judge my current circumstances. I can't judge God's love for me based on my current circumstances. Because God's love for me was not determined in my circumstances. God's love for me was established on the cross where he died and gave his life for me. So no matter what I face, no matter what struggles I'm going through, no matter what you're facing right now, you may be facing a difficult relationship. You may be facing a health crisis. You may be facing a financial crisis. Your circumstances do not determine how Jesus feels about you because it didn't determine how Jesus felt about John. But instead, Jesus' word is, keep your eyes on me. Trust in me. Watch what I am doing. The blind are being healed. The lame are being, are being healed. The dead are being raised, and ultimately, God's love for you is demonstrated to you on his cross where Jesus died. So here, here's my question for you. Is there a way in your life this week 
Is there a way in your life this week where less of you might result in more of him? Less of you would result in more of him. That you take your eyes off the mirror and you realize everything I'm doing, my circumstances, my health crisis, my marriage, my finances, my problem at work, my problem at home, my problem with my parents, my problem with my kids, all of those circumstances ultimately, ultimately can be something that God will use to bring glory to himself. It's not about me. It's about him. Jesus said in John, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he said, anyone who would come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Denying self is the hardest part. Once you deny yourself, it's easy to take up the cross. But if you can't deny yourself, there's no way you'll pick up the cross that Jesus has called you to pick up. So this morning, I'm going to ask, as the musicians come back, for us just to have a time of commitment and reflection I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. We're going to pray together. And we're going to sing a, a familiar song. Um, and it's one that it's easy to sing without thinking about the words. The, the words to the song are, I surrender all. But the problem is, all means everything. It includes yourself. So for some of you who are here today, maybe you have never made a commitment to follow after Jesus at all. And you realize that you are holding on to yourself. And so today, in an act of just submission to him, you would surrender yourself. You'd say, I, I want to give my life to follow after Jesus. For others of us, we have been following him for a long time. But you know what we do? We keep, we keep going back to our own selves. We keep picking up our own desires. We keep looking in the mirror. So maybe today, for some of us, it's just a recommitment to a life of a selfless witness. To, to lay aside our pride and our selflessness and say, he is greater than I. In my problems, in my successes, in my relationships, in everything, he is greater than I. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. Lord, we thank you for the examples that we have in the Bible. Men like John the Baptist. Lord, just by sheer volume of words, John the Baptist is would be considered by many to be a minor character. We don't have anything he wrote. We have just a very few stories about him. And yet, you looked at John and said, of everyone born, there's nobody greater than John. And so we realize, first of all, that the way we view achievement and accomplishment in the world is already distorted. That you have a different criteria. So Lord, we want to live in such a way Father, that it would be selfless. Selfless in our service and selfless in our witness. Lord, we confess our fear, we confess our insecurity. Lord, and we realize that even those fears and those insecurities are rooted in pride. We invite you to do a deep work inside of us. Lord, for those who are here who have never trusted in Jesus, they've never even for the first time denied themselves and said, I want to follow after him. Lord, I pray that today might be a day where they begin that journey, knowing that it is a daily pursuit. Father, for those of us who, who try to walk with you each and every day, would you, would you continue to reveal our own hearts to us, re reveal our motives to us, ways that we're fearful and that fear is leading to insecurity, which is leading us to be focused on ourselves. Would you help us to become more like John the Baptist?
Father, that we might live a life that says it is our joy that he might increase even as we decrease. Would you be glorified in us? Would you be glorified in this church, Lord? Lord, that that there would be no other name that we would seek to promote as individuals and as a church, but the name of Jesus, that he might be lifted up. Father, would you bring glory to yourself? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.